Johnson at CK Tricky on X, joined by my uh, co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on X. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. We are excited to be back. Uh, I know it's this is our, I think, six-year anniversary of launching the podcast. So Ken and I are excited to be here. Uh, there's a few things uh, to run through. First of all, I wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, Redpoint Security. Uh, Redpoint specializes in code security for coders, bolstered by years of experience testing applications and conducting code reviews against all types of apps, including web, mobile, AI, and Web3. Redpoint also offers training to help ground your teams in better security practices across the development lifecycle. So check out redpointsecurity.com for more information and put your company on a path to better security. Thanks to Redpoint for sponsoring our six-year episode. Uh, outside of that, we do have trainings coming up. Uh, Kernel Con is the one that's next on the calendar. Uh, that's April, I think, 2nd and 3rd are the dates that we will be conducting secure code review at Kernel Con. I'll drop the link in here shortly. Um, but we also have been invited to be one of the trainers for DEF CON Paris in also in April, right? The later part of April. So if you are in Europe looking for an opportunity to take secure code review, this is going to be your chance. Um, there may be other opportunities coming up this year. We just don't know quite yet uh, from a European perspective. But the Paris training will be a four-day training as opposed to the regular two-day, which is going to give us a lot of time to dig in and really do some deep dives into code review principles, patterns, AI, like the use of AI in a code review, how we're actually utilizing that, um, setting up an environment, other things that we kind of have to gloss over in the two-day course because there is a lot to cover. Uh, but the four-day course should be I, it, it'll be an interesting experience, uh, right, Ken? Um, oh, whoops, I put Reg in there, not the actual training course. That's my bad. Hey, just short circuit the, the process. Just go register. That's what Seth yeah, said. Yeah, just, even... just, just go into register. Don't even review. Just pick our course. Go register. Um, Kernel Con, we love to support it. Uh, Ken will also, and I will also be at CactusCon. Uh, that's next month in... Um, Arizona, Phoenix. if you will be, yeah, in Phoenix, if you will be there, let us know. Um, I'm pretty sure we're going to do a happy hour. We just haven't figured out exactly what the details of that look like. Um, but at the very least, get together with friends, listeners, and, you know, talk security, talk AppSec, whatever else, maybe have a few drinks. That'd be a fun time. Yeah, actually, I was talking to my, I was talking to, uh, to James this morning about that. Um, so yeah, we're definitely, Tryrun is definitely in to co-sponsor a uh, an e uh, uh, evening event um, at CactusCon. Okay, so should be a good hey, one. Hey, Charles. Yeah, it'll be a fun time. Um, yeah, let me think. What else? I don't know. I, I like. I feel like I'm still a little discombobulated trying to get back into the swing of things for the year. I don't know how you feel about that, Ken. Um, I never left. Uh, you never <laughs> that's left. That's feel. right. Yeah. But it's also yeah. why I'm sick right now. It's because apparently you need sleep and, and stuff like that to, uh, to exist. Regular, 
regular <laughs> human things. I don't know what you're talking about. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You're a, you're, you're a startup founder now. You don't need any of that. It's just like you're, you're a bot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Uh, it's in a good way though. No. Yeah. No. Um, uh, cool. yeah, I think um, the only thing I was going to, Oh, sorry. Are you still? No, no, go ahead. Oh. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Sweet. So I was going to mention just a couple things. Um, the first one is just the, uh, the the sweater I'm wearing right now. Um, I bought this from, I'm trying to here, see if you can see it. Uh, AI won't save you. I, I need to do the mirroring of my thing and then it'll be easier to tell what it's saying. But um, in any case, uh, this this is a uh, awesome bit of uh, design here from Cloud Security Partners. I'm only mentioning it because you can buy it at any time, and uh, essentially the the not essentially the the proceeds go to Toys for Tots. So obviously it'll go for 2024 Toys for Tots. Um, I'll post a link here in a sec, and then um, they actually Cloud Security Partners matches whatever you donate. Um, or so basically when you buy this, that goes towards that donation, and they match uh, donations. So that was the first thing I was going to mention. Um, yeah, second thing is little horse today, not feeling super well. So, uh, uh, you know, just take, bear in mind, uh, I'm not at 100%. Um, yeah. And, oh, and uh, I guess the last thing is, since Dry Run does uh, sponsor things, uh, I will mention that uh, although we're in beta pretty soon, I'm about to release a check for doing AppSec analysis on your code through uh, our product. Um, and it takes about 30 seconds to install, and then you can start getting uh, analysis of your code Right now we have some other checks you run around, you know, are you changing sensitive functions? Are you changing sensitive files? Have you touched a file you're not supposed to according to the configuration? We alert the security team on those types of things. We have warnings and annotations. So that's the last thing I'll mention before we just kind of get right into it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, like we've been doing some, you know, early year kind of dev stuff on some of our processes, some of our like internal things. Um, it's been interesting to see dry run actually flag sensitive functions and like the, um, yeah, it, just the way that the process works there. Um, can't, you know, yeah, it, it just, you know, seems to be super effective for at least like identifying things that I didn't necessarily configure, but it's doing a pretty good job of um, flagging the stuff that we should be concerned about. So if we're touching some authentication modules, all of a sudden we get a notification. Hey, it looks like this is, you know, something interesting. Maybe you should take care, right? You know, that kind of stuff. It's cool. It's cool. It's good stuff. Thanks. Yeah. The ultimate goal is to really take all of the different checks that run and we're going to put them together, produce a risk score, tell you whether or not you should care about that PR or whether you can just go on without your day. That's kind of the goal, right? Is to be the, the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Uh, reduce all, and actually that leads to um, kind of a discussion because um, I don't, I don't know if we can we can jump into it about false positives versus false negatives. Is that uh, yeah. okay with you? Cool. Yeah, yeah, let's do yeah. it. I got asked. Um, I got asked last week. I think it, yeah, it was, wait, it was Tuesday. Yeah, so last week, um, do people care more about uh, false positives or false negatives? To be honest with you, I didn't really know the answer. Um, because I've heard, you know, I don't know, Seth, I hear, I've heard all kinds of different takes on what's more important from a security tools perspective. Like is, you know, 
hey, <clears throat> maybe it's noisy, but as long as it doesn't miss things or uh, vice versa, like, no, it's not not cool to to have, uh, you know, tons of false positives. It's a huge burden. Um, <clears throat> but I'm curious, first, two things. First, what are your personal thoughts on false positives versus false negatives? And I can later I can cover what Twitter said and what our Slack uh, folks had said as well. But what are your yeah. thoughts on, on, on that? And then <clears throat> actually, let's just start there. Sorry. Okay. Um, I have, I have lots of feelings on false positives because I've spent so much of my career combing through false positives. Um, you know, um, it seems like early days, even like from an automated tool perspective, false positives seems to be a, uh, a necessary evil, right? Like just based on how our automated systems have run in the past. And so as much as I like dread something like Fortify giving me false positives, it's also to me kind of this security blanket of, okay, at least I knew, I know the tool ran, right? Um, I almost use it as a, a sanity check that the tool is indeed processing code and is doing what I've expected in the past. Now, that doesn't mean that they're super useful over time, right? Like, as I said, like, I've spent so much time just like combing through false positives over the years and running down rabbit holes, going on side quests, trying to determine if, you know, something from an automated scanner actually is vulnerable vulnerable in the ways the the way that they've represented and i would probably say 90 95% of the time that i've dug into those findings it probably it hasn't been anything that's been actionable or usable right um and so like i i, I have mixed feelings right like um i would as as someone that's low level in the code I would rather see false positives to make sure that the tool is running appropriately um, and that it's doing what I expect it to do than to tune or like to tune them all out and then be afraid that I have a, a, a false negative, that the tool is not doing what, what is intended. Um, but that's because I'm so close to it, right? Like I, I've, I've operated as a filter two false positives for the security team for the last 15 years, right? Um, and so that's my own, I guess, workload or, you know, pattern that I use is that's part of the value that I've always provided is being able to take those false positives, go through them quickly. You know, what we're starting to use an LLM, what you're starting to do a dry run to actually eliminate and step into that that location, but I feel like uh, they've got to be there for me to actually function and actually have some some assurance that the tool is operating properly. I, I don't know if that's really a, a great answer no, for you. But, it is yeah. because so what's funny is when I originally asked this question, um, my assumption was that, or the way I was thinking about it narrowly was like essentially developers that have to deal with false positives or internal security teams that have to deal with false positives. What I hadn't thought too much about were people that make money off of finding vulnerabilities. And so for instance, Douglas Day, who uh, 
was a really, really solid, is a really, really solid bug bounty researcher and, and gave a lot of great uh, findings to us at GitHub, um, had responded on Twitter saying, you know, um, mixed, kind of what you said, mixed feelings, like, yeah, false positives leads to fatigue, you know, inactionable or inaction, um, all this, the same kind of things that you just said. <clears throat> At the same time, um, also along the same lines, uh, well, maybe a little differently, because he wasn't necessarily validating other people's like scan tool outputs. But if a tool doesn't tell him, you know, about something, then he's like, well, I lose out. Right? I don't make, I don't make money. And uh, that, that's a pretty, uh, I don't know, that's a pretty interesting uh, take on it. Because I, I really hadn't thought about it, about it in that way, where it's like, yeah, if you're using this to to like, but see, I think also the reason I didn't think about that was that with, with like bug bounty researchers specifically, usually to make the high dollar bit, it's not, um, it's not really a, a tool-based process, right? Except for it kind of can be, right? Like a good example would be <clears throat> you and I talked a lot about GraphQL, right? It's like mm -hmm. you can find some really impactful things about GraphQL, but um, you really, to like, iterate through all of, for, first of all, to, to infer like what uh, queries and mutations you can run, you need to do a bit of introspection. But from there, that could be like a huge list of query, queries and mutations. And uh, so then you're stuck with a situation where you have like a lot of work to do, a big surface. And, you know, like you, you obviously need to automate some of that. So uh, it makes sense. It's just, I don't know, my head wasn't there. And so I really, and yeah, Charles said, I never trust tools. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I think you have to you have to verify and not trust, I guess. But um, in any case, uh, the second question I was going to ask you, Seth, though, is like from your client's perspective, right? Or even from other colleagues doing similar work, have you gotten input before on what they think? About? I'm certain you have, but I'm curious. You know, yeah. Assuming you've gotten input on on their their feeling here, like what have you heard? Um, I, I mean, most of what I get from clients is that a similar sentiment to Charles, right? Like if they're doing any sort of vulnerability, uh, management, um, they've got a vulnerability management program. They don't trust the tools, right? Um, because, uh, the amount of data coming out of it, the amount of false positives, like the signal to noise ratio from a positive to a false positive is, is so I, don't, I can't remember. It's so low, right? Like, so there's so few um, valid findings in this list that's coming back that they don't trust them. Um, and th I've heard this multiple times because we do like, we'll go in and do an assessment, a dynamic, a code review, we'll validate the findings. And then we present a report to them and they're like, wow, this is great. Everything in this report is valid and an actual concern and something that we can go fix, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, like that's why you pay us, right? Like is so you don't have to go spend four weeks digging through everything came, that came out of this tool to determine the one to two items because we can do that quickly based on our experience over time. And that's what we're trying to, trying to train an LLM or we're trying to train AI to actually help with is to speed up that process for us, that pattern analysis that you and I, at this point, you know, we're doing it pretty intuitively, right? I know when I open Fortify that there's going to be findings around, you know, checksums and like certain Java findings and other things that 
based on past experience, we know that they're not right. Like we know that they're not vulnerabilities or there's such a low possibility that what it's calling out is an issue that we need to go actually resolve. I'm going to just ignore complete classes. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and now I've wandered so far, I can't even remember. Oh, clients, like what they're, um, well, you're just saying like, yeah, when you're I doing feel like consulting, you're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they pay us to actually eliminate the false positives and only present them with um, real vulnerabilities. And so then the concern becomes more of that false negative that, hey, we gave them assurance that we had looked at everything, but I still have to caveat all of my reports with, man, you only gave me two, three weeks to look at, you know, two million lines of Ruby. I, you know, um, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, I'm a, I'm finding this, especially in the Web3 space, um, that they want this 100% assurance that once you've looked at a smart contract, that it's secure and it's never going to have any problems, right? And I, like it, it's become an issue with clients at times that those false negatives are misinterpreted as far as like what you get out of a security audit because you're never going to catch everything. Anyway, yeah. No, it's funny that the tolerance is less for uh, for false positives than, than false ne- negatives. And in my head, when when I was asked this question, I was like, well, surely like, you know, so like somebody, and, and here, here are some of the responses, by the way, I'm, I'm going to read these real quick. So what is worse to you, false negatives or false positives in your tooling? Um, so I mentioned Douglas, he said, you know, false positives cost me time, false negatives cost me money. Um, the but this is this is the point I wanted to make. One of the responses was from Bobby Tables, who we had on the podcast, along with Steph Stefan and um, yeah. After that Kubernetes audit that they did years ago, oh, what's yep. her name? Oh, I sorry, I'll, I'll figure. I'll remember this in a second. But we had all three on, um, and this was at in Vegas, and this was yeah. The Kubernetes attack report came out for the CNCF uh, report. Um, Bobby was on that episode, so if you want to go back and you know, see who Bobby is, but he was saying that, you know, his ability to parse, um, parse out that content and weed out false positives pretty quickly, um, sort of, it seemed like maybe, uh, you know, it wasn't the false positives weren't as big of a deal and maybe false negatives would be, um, Juan, who's a, uh, you know, longtime viewer of the, the podcast, uh, false positives are a major resource waster. Uh, and unless the false positives, false positives can be handled uh, quickly or cheaply. So again, this goes back to the point, like it seems like if false positives can quickly be eliminated, then, you know, maybe the concern becomes prioritized towards false negatives or false, false negatives. Yeah, man, having a tough time riding the struggle bus hard today, if you can't tell. Um, In any case, the show must go on. The show uh, must go on. <laughs> but yeah, I would have thought honestly, part of me was like, surely false negatives are the, the, the biggest issue, right? Because like if you miss that, but it's funny to hear like um that the human tolerance is le- like there's less tolerance for the human rather than the tool with false negatives. Yeah, it makes sense to a degree if it's something blatant, obvious, and critical, right? I get that. And especially if it was within like the obvious threat model of that application kind of get that. But also to your point, 
and we've talked about this in the course, it's almost impossible to find everything because you're just not given the time. You just aren't given that time, right? You can do your best. You can do the best job ever at like trying to automate things and speed parts of your methodology up. But at the end of the day, you're still a human. And what was the, the recommendation for amounts of lines of code a human can reasonably do a, a proper review on from Smart Bear? I forget what it was, but it was like, oh, I, I think it's like not more than, yeah, a couple yeah. hundred lines per hour. Um, hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to look that up again. Cause it's been a while. Um, I've heard somewhere between like, yeah, yeah, a couple hundred to 500, but no more than that. And to your point, you're talking about sometimes like a, you know, a million, two million, three million lines of code. If it's a Ruby app, I mean, that's like 70 billion lines of code at that point. That's too frustrating, but. Well, no, no, no. Here, I've got, <laughs> here, I, I found it, right? Like this is what is code review, right? Like from Smart Bear, their recommendation for code review. So this is like multiple people in, right? Crucial Insights. Uh, under review should be less than 200, not exceeding 400, right? So inspection rates of less than 300 lines of code per hour result in the best defect detection. 500 is still good, but expect a significant percentage of defects to be missed if lines of code are reviewed faster than that. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's, so again, how do you expect, well, how would the tolerance, you know, again, like, obvious within that threat model easy to like not easy to find but you know it's pretty concrete finding you know i, I could kind of get why um and something that's like just blatant yeah i mean i could see why someone would be upset somebody would be upset about that but if we're talking about more uh you know i don't know nuanced things or whatever it's like you said you know and maybe even stuff that falls outside the original threat model of like, cause you know, we, we always say, take a risk-based approach, obviously, like look at what the app's doing, who it's doing it for a bunch yeah. of other factors, and then prioritize your review based off of that. So if you're doing that, <clears throat> yeah, you're, you, you're probably going to have false negatives, uh, once, once in a while. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I just thought it was an interesting exploration into people's sort of risk tolerance well, and, you know, and, and there was, yeah. Things. If you look in the in the random channel in the absolute AppSec Slack, right, um, there was a couple other responses in there from what Scott and Talos um, and even Jerry, it, you know, Jerry put it pretty succinctly, right? Um, yeah, false positive passed on to the remediation teams without validation is one of the easiest ways to get them not to trust a tool. I would even argue not to trust the security team. Um, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, if you, if you talk to many developers, that's one of their big complaints is just this, Hey, the security team sends us all this stuff, uh, without context, without a remediation plan. Um, they give me more work and I get two hours into it and realize that it's not really an issue. Um, like they're, they're not going to take you seriously after that, right? Like that was one of the points that I did want to bring up is it can damage relationships very quickly if it's not a, um, if it's not a real vulnerability, right? Um, yeah, I think the general consensus is that false positives is worse uh, depending on the organization that you're in, at least in the, you know, in the discussion that we had in Slack. Um, 
because just based on, yeah, based on the maturity of the organization and how they actually handle false positives and what their vulnerability management program looks like. So we've got a lot of people that are in product security or application security for large organizations. They're dealing with this on a daily basis. They have to very, they have to walk a fine line on what is actually provided to developers in order to keep that trust and keep that relationship going because you can't cry wolf every day. No. Like, yeah. And I know we've had this discussion in the past, but it's, yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, it's a, it, it, you know, it's, it's one that I think every once in a while, it's good to kind of, to get a gauge on because, you know, technologies change, processes change. um, And uh, we evolve and people's opinions change with that. Um, so it's good to get a temperature check on it. I mean, I, I like what I'm seeing too. in some of these responses, like, uh, you know, again, <clears throat> security folks sometimes forget that you shouldn't spend a hundred dollars to protect your $20 bill. Totally, totally true. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I like Scott's, I won't mention the, the vendor tool, but, uh, he said, yeah, I wonder if anyone who says, but a false negative is worse has ever personally had to triage the results of insert vendor uh, product scan. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty tedious and time consuming or, or can be, but, um, yeah, but uh, so, but part of the problem that I have with the tools and false positives, like the number of vulnerabilities that pop out of things like check marks is this, uh, like I run into this with senior management at organizations and clients that I work with. They think that, oh, well, I have a dynamic scanner. I've got a static analyzer. I'm good. I don't necessarily need to do any more like on my, that is my application security program, right? Um, Granted, that's a maturity thing. They haven't had, you know, they haven't dealt with it before, but I see this in a lot of organizations that again, like, oh, well, I'm catching everything that I need to because I'm running these tools. Um, because that's what the vendors are telling them, even though we know from an experience perspective that that's not that's not necessarily the case. I, I wanted to touch on something Charles uh, said here in chat. He said, "This is why, as uh, as web hackers, uh, web app hackers, we need to apply the make it hurt method, screenshots, and remediation plan." Uh, super, super important. And I think I just do want to mention the remediation bit there because we talk about it. Again, I always say we talk about it in our course, but we we do. And we say like, when you're writing up remediation advice, uh, advice for folks, try to, especially if you can run the app locally, like that's, that's the best case scenario. Because if you can run their app locally, you can actually test out the fixes. But I like to provide, and I know you do too. I like to provide sample code fixes. I think that's the best way to do it. Because if you, if you can give people, um, you know, advice on, on how to write, uh, write, how to fix it. You give them an example. Obviously they, we, I've said this a million times, they'll rewrite it. They'll make it better. You know, these are professional developers, but the point is at least you gave them a starting point. If you give them some generic, like remediation, like, Oh, wasp says you should output in code your whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's like, all right, cool. Like that's not helpful. That's not going to get things fixed quickly. Your security, like if you're on your side where you're a consultant and you hand over your report and you give like pretty succinct, specific remediation advice, that security team should love you because mm-hmm. now you've just given their developers something actionable that like means that there's less cognitive 
load and then you can go they can go and, and, and implement much quicker and you'll probably see uh, fixes get rolled out quicker um, depending on the organization the developers and all that stuff but yeah so anyways i like um oh yeah scott yeah no totally i know i know you weren't like uh dogging out that tour and, and i honestly i don't care one, one way or the other and if you do <laughs> but uh i just didn't want to put them on blast it's a bad look for me so uh anyways <laughs> you do you want me to because it's a yeah. no 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 it's fine uh, it's, we're not throwing shade today we're not what is this <laughs> i don't have the energy for it yeah no ken must be sick normally he just like barrels right through that right um yeah i don't know so but where you're going with remediation with the screenshots actually feeds into that other uh that other article that we wanted to talk about with the, the I in LLM stands for intelligence, right? Um, from Daniel, I'm going to post it here because it, it speaks directly to um, bug bounty um, reports, right? Like, uh, and what he is seeing behind the scenes that people are actually like providing remediation advice but they're using the LLMs to generate that remediation advice for these bugs. And, you know, he goes through what, three or four, two or three, at least different reports that he's received. Um, yeah, exhibit A, exhibit B coming in. And basically the fix did not necessarily, there was no buffer overflow, right? Like, you know, it, it's basically the vulnerability is, it's almost like uh, the LLM is hallucinating the fix, the vulnerability, and then it's it's still ending up in the report. And we're starting to spin and spend time on this because things haven't been validated in a proper manner, right? Um, and I and it and I know this is a fine line. I know we've talked a lot about bug bounty reports or LLMs and AI in general and how it should be used. This is probably one of those instances where. Yeah, we need to put a little bit more thought into it before we actually generate some of these recommendations based on what an LLM is telling us, right? If I remember, and I read that article uh, <clears throat> not today, but uh, like maybe a few days ago or whenever I'd first seen it. But um, the the thing I do remember, I, I think, anyways, was the uh, like uh, or the, the good the the good use case for for this. But what where it gets flawed is when you're you have a non-native uh, English speaker submitting to an or you know whatever language uh, and just submitting to, to to a program who does not speak the language that you speak. And actually, <clears throat> it's maybe myopic of me, but I actually don't know of any non um, like I know Bug Crowd, I know Hacker One, right? So. Uh, but if I'm a non-native English speaker, that's probably one way to use it. I don't, obviously you need to do some translation and, and make sure that, but I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is that we're talking about kind of throwing stuff at the wall using um, AI to generate some some content that makes it seem potentially realistic. Um, basically trying to trick the, the bounty program, cause a bit of fatigue, get stuff triaged. Uh, maybe you get lucky and something slips through. If that's the case, obviously it's horrible. But what does make me chuckle a little bit is I was thinking about this when I first read that article. Like it's like because I've I've heard 
<clears throat> use cases recently of using AI to detect AI. And it's just the spy. You remember spy versus spy with mad TV? That's yeah, exactly. What it reminds me of just two LLMs trying to, trying to beat each other. Um, yeah. But uh, well, yeah, anyway, so I, it's, it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Those platforms probably will have to put detection in for these types of things. Yeah. Like filters. Yeah. They're, they will, they will at some point. And um, I mean, and, and we've seen this in some of the other, like some of our other friends talking about uh, um, AI detectors that have actually been built and how poorly they actually do. Right. Like, you know, um, and we're starting to see that from like, oh, somebody wrote a paper or a presentation. It was detected as being like written by an AI, um, but only because we took this whole sum and we didn't actually divide it up. And like, uh, you know, if you go to the, the companies, they have some disclaimer about, well, you really shouldn't use this as your only detection method um, for AI written, whatever, right? Yeah, so I, I, it's an interesting problem that we're going to run into. Um, I know, like, yeah, I, my my daughter actually is in, uh, she's in college. She works in a writing center, and they've been having a lot of discussions with students on what is an appropriate use of something like a chat GPT to actually help you um, help you generate content, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is Know, building an outline, building an overall structure, like things that you would anticipate just looking up online, I can see, but actually generating the full, like this is what you're supposed to be writing is where it, where it starts to fall down and where we see things like what Daniel was seeing in those reports, right? Um, it's pulling data that isn't necessarily relevant to the current finding. It's hallucinating security issues that may or may not exist. It's mis- uh, misapplying uh, likelihood exploitation and other things to the actual impact, um, right? And if you've ever tried to ask ChatGPT or one of the LLMs to generate a finding for you, that that's exactly what you would see uh, as someone professional in the field is just, yeah, you're kind of right, but not really, right? Um, so actually, on that note, you know, I think. That, that brings up another good point. I, I'll grab the articles here too, but this was another. So like on that note, again, not to like pivot into that because I'll keep it real brief, but I sent you a link and I was doing a little bit of homework trying to see like, you know, how people are using LLMs to do security work. And um, so on that note, you know, uh, for, for code remediation advice out of the box, um, these researchers found, these are like uh, Georgia Tech uh, PhDs. They found that it was like 50% accurate uh, roughly with um, pretty much all the major like GPT three and a half, GPT four, um, Code Lama. Those are the three major LLMs, if I'm not mistaken, they, they tested. Um, how they got it to be above around 90% accuracy to your to this whole like summarization bit is they, they used um, in their tests, they used uh, Bandit for Python, right? Yep. They ran scans using a deterministic um, scanner. They got the remediation advice from that scanner. They said, okay, well, um, now I'm going to pump this over to the LLM along with uh, code that's vulnerable and uh, give me a summary, a verbal summary of everything that's wrong here and you know what, what you would do to fix it and all that stuff. Then they took <clears throat> the finding, the code, and the um, uh, verbalized summary, fed that again into an LLM for another iteration, but this time 
produce uh, code advice that's actually somewhat, uh, or you know, provide accurate code code remediation advice. And that's how they got to their 90%. Now they, they use a bunch of math symbols and church it up and it's a PhD paper. So what do you expect? But uh, that's essentially what they're doing. They, they had some other stuff, um, their fine tuning capabilities, their testing, like what vulnerable apps or where they got vulnerable code from. Um, some Oh, interestingly enough too, they actually had prompts for each CWE that they were running checks for. And uh, the prompts are there to create unit tests that validate the code they're giving remediation advice for uh, will not break. So it's a very interesting, um, and they have like a proprietary term they're using, they've coined for it. But but in any case, it was a pretty interesting way to use a chained LLM situation to summarize things and then, you know, produce yeah. like much better output. So I'll share the link. I'll find it here in a sec. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, I mean, I think that's where it becomes more effective is you start to give the LLM more and more context about what it is that you want it to say, what the advice is, um, and, you know... It, basically training it at some level. Um, I almost feel like that's editing of something like what Daniel is seeing in the report is no, this was wrong. Like go in, you need to refine this statement to get the LLM or to get AI to actually do what you want it to do and to spit something out that, that is more usable. Um, I, I think we'll learn over time how to actually apply that. Uh, good call though on, yeah, that actually. Yeah, that it, it's interesting. There's so many different use cases. If you just search, you know, uh, for for content, there's uh, or for like use cases that people are, are implementing. There's there's tons of interesting research going on out there. Um, but since we got we're 38, almost 38 minutes into it, I did want to pivot on to um, GitHub security findings platform they released. Yeah. Um, Again, trying to pull up some some links here, but um, all right, yeah. So I got this link. I'll put this in. This is actually an interesting one because this was ongoing, um, and I was a part of the early discussions as this was being designed. And I'll explain why uh, this was really cool. And so this is actually one thing I can still talk about and remember a little bit about um, about GitHub. If I could just paste into Slack, I'll figure this out. Anyways. Um, <laughs> So tough. So <clears throat> basically the, the whole uh, gist of the article, oh, wrong keyboard. That's why I got too many keyboards and <laughs> laptops and iPads and shit in front of me. Um, <clears throat> right. So security findings platform, really cool. The idea is it says something like what is it, 150 million findings, scaling vulnerability management across, uh, you know, hundred, yeah, 150 million findings. All right. So I'm going to take you through a real brief journey of why, of what I remember and how it related to the broader, um, well, let's do a summary of the article, then we'll talk about sort of why it was interesting and the broader uh, goal there. So the it, basically it talks about, we have tons of, of services and services usually, services equate to repos, right? Mm -hmm. And those services all have GAS enabled. So, you know, CodeQL and Dependabot and all that fun stuff. Then there's also like other tools. Um, I think they might've mentioned like Wiz and things like that, you know, different 
security tooling that they might uh, may or may not be using still. I don't know if that wasn't in there. Sorry, guys. Um, but anyways, they, they use a bunch of tools and, and uh, that's great. But we need to see like the problem really is, all right, what services are really out of SLA? Similar to like with Monocle and Shine that we had on the, the podcast a couple weeks ago. You know, yeah. how do we manage that at scale? How do we how do we show which services are like kind of behind and have a, a worse score and need to do some things? How do we prioritize what matters and what doesn't? And then how does that play into the broader security posture of our application security code at GitHub, right? So now Steph and me and his team built security findings and they were uh, part of, oh man, um, it changed a few times. At one point it was like SecOps, but uh, just to be clear, that wasn't like, you know, um, the AppSec side of things, the ProdSec side of things. So on the ProdSec side of things, I've talked about on the podcast before, our challenges with security reviews um, and not just at GitHub, but just in general, how difficult it is when you're moving pretty fast to actually mitigate risk through uh, doing you know, security reviews where someone submits because they met some criteria for submitting. They tell you what they're going to build or what they're are more likely what they're already building or are about to ship. And uh, then everybody scrambles to kind of like have input um, and it sp splinters out into all these different types of reviews, you know, GRC, AppSec, whatever. Um, then everybody comes back and says, oh, you're blessed and it's probably already shipped anyways, but whatever, right? That's a security review. Obviously, lots of problems as code change. That's actually when like you could do the most thorough review. But like the reality is most vulnerabilities that were pretty critical at any place I've ever worked come through like those those incremental changes to the code base after it's been reviewed. So like I don't know how useful it is. It's good for like a, a, a minimum minimum kind of like hygiene situation. But and maybe getting a heads up if it's early enough to actually go and help design things. But other than that, you know, it's a pretty, pretty tedious business at uh, GitHub slash Microsoft's uh, scale. So one of the ideas was, well, as you're going through this process, we need to start determining existing risk of services in the service catalog. So me meaning like if you're adding a new feature, maybe it's like low hanging or not low, maybe it's like low risk or whatever, but <clears throat> it's being attached to a service that has a lot of unremediated, uh, you know, unremediated findings. It's like, all right, well, like that low risk feature is not a low risk feature anymore. In fact, we need to like halt and take some time to figure out what's going on here. But also like, you know, service owners should be accountable for if they're not like remediating things, like what's your plan to remediate those things? How do we track how long, you know, it's going to be to remediate those problems and where your stream of work is to, to, do, to do so. So why I'm saying all this is it's really neat for, first of all, to see them, implement security findings because it was really just an idea with screenshots when I left. So that, mm -hmm. first of all, is a short timeline. I've only been gone from Get GitHub for nine or 10 months now. Yeah. I think 10 months. So it's not been a long time and that that's incredible progress. But I think the other cooler part is it's about to enable a bunch of capabilities for them to assess real risk with throughout the org organization, throughout the ecosystem. And then having this will allow them to optimize through technology and, you know, refinement of their processes yeah, how they're reducing risk. And I'm really like excited for them about like, you know, obviously worked there for almost six years. I really care about uh, their security. My product runs on GitHub and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a 
big fanboy of GitHub. So anyways, it, it's really neat to see all this. What, what were your thoughts? I've talked a lot. My voice is scratchy. What, what do you what do you think about all this? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I do from a um, from a client perspective, you know, especially those that were helping build larger programs, not just doing like single assessments for. This is one of the things that I see most organizations struggling with is how to get their hands around. I mean, not not talking false positives, false negatives or anything, but just like vulnerabilities and how to get that processed so that everything gets solved in a timely manner according to whatever SLAs are like required for compliance and other reasons, right? Um, and so it's like like with Monocle like and Chime, it's interesting to see how those organ how organizations are actually able to take that and make it an actionable process because I know all of these other clients are struggling with the same thing. Right. Like they get vulnerabilities in, they have all these disparate sources. Number one, number two, they don't necessarily know who the owners are. Like, how do they reduce risk? How do they actually prioritize what that list is? When is it that it should be a, you know, a critical issue that issues a stop in a build so it can actually be resolved? How do you equate that actually all up? And yes, it's great because we already have like the development boards and like Jira and like workflows that already exist, but plugging into, into that as another source, as another type of bug that has very, very specific SLAs um, associated with it is so difficult when an organization gets above, right? Like as soon as you separate out developers from project managers and everything else, right? Uh, it's just... It, it's fascinating to watch, and I don't, I don't see a lot of organizations that have solved this effectively. Right? Um, yeah. yeah, so it, it, yeah, it's interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see how it actually helps from a security perspective over time, right? Um, to see if it actually is as effective as it seems to be. I mean, granted, you know, this is the the blog about it. Um, but it'll be, you know, it might be interesting at some point to have somebody on that's actually implementing the process to talk through what other issues have cropped up in using some automated process like this um, or automated tool to push that through. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really interesting step. And like, truthfully, it was really well thought. Like Stefan, who wrote the blog and also was kind of the person behind who pushed the, the security finding super in fact i need to get him on the podcast <clears throat> super sharp person but also very thorough and very de detail oriented and, and thinks uh critically about pros and cons best way to do things um definitely one of those people that um that has a perfect balance i would say of uh speed but also um doing things the right way, you know, quality and quantity, um, good balance between the two. So, you know, anyways, good job, Stefan and team. That's really, really awesome to see. Um, I'm excited for you all having something like that to manage your vulnerabilities at scale. It's a huge, huge, huge win. And I uh, really can't uh, overstate that enough. So pretty, yeah. pretty dope. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so it's been six years, Seth, six years on the podcast. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you yeah. was for your highlights. Like, what are the things that you, oh, and man. I know it's, I did not give you time to prepare at all. So it's going to take you a second to think through this. I know, but 
you know, we've done a lot. We've done everything from, you know, just going through it while I, while I give you time to think we've done mm -hmm. midwinter's nights conferences, right. Which I guess uh, there's been talk of wanting to bring that back. Um, we did midsummer nights conference uh, stuff with uh, again, with Stefan who big shout out to Stefan Edwards, who like pushed a lot of that stuff for us and all the volunteers and speakers that came on. Uh, we've done, we tried experimenting with uh, the after dark episodes. And then, uh, we actually kept finding like real vulnerabilities and open source live. And so we cut that out. Uh, it's, since it's so easy, apparently to find pretty significant flaws in open source software and people get mad about it when you do it live anyways. <laughs> uh, so we did that. We've done, um, obviously we've had a ton of guests on, we've done impromptu. So we've done some impromptu videos, but I think, you know, some of our, uh, being at conferences and doing some of the, uh, absolute AppSec live at uh, various conferences, the most recent one being last con and, uh, just generally, you know, showing people how to do stuff and, um, all that. Yeah. What are your, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? I, my thoughts, I, like hmm, my highlights definitely, you know, like the community in and of itself, right? Like every time that we have a, um, like we do one of the live, you know, the live talks, the panels and, um, or like the happy hour this last year, right? At DEF CON, the first time that we had really done something that formal, the amount of people that we had, the amount of guests that showed up that we've had on over the years, it was definitely like a, Oh yeah, like we've, you know, it's really become something bigger than just you or I. Um, and seeing like the uh, the topics that pop out, the stuff that people post in Slack, um, helping each other out without impetus from you and me um, is amazing to see, right? Like you know, I I think everyone's struggling with something similar, just in a you know slightly different fashion in a different organization, and the support that we get from the community at large has been awesome. Um, so I'd say that I really enjoyed doing like the conferences, um, especially at the time, right? Like in the middle of the pandemic as the, as that was going on, being able to have some of those people come on and, you know, just, you know, boost spirits across the board uh, was awesome to see. Um, man, I don't know. Like it, I, I think you and I get like a fair amount of energy from this sort of, uh, you know, interaction obviously you and i know each other very well um so it's a it's a good way for us to catch up like which is how it started right like is that's that's just bitching about appsec but um right like that that's where it started to come from but but including others in that um yeah i i, I mean I, I i think that's it for me right like from a from a highlight perspective like just um you know, uh, who was it that we had on that was a circus performer before they got into security? Um, it was uh, Mirai. It was somebody from Mirai, right? Like, what was her name? Um, uh, Jess. Uh, Jess, yes. <laughs> um, I'm sure I have it up here. Oh, by the way, it was InfoSec Anon I was thinking of earlier. Um, okay, yeah. From uh, the Kubernetes report. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jess, uh, I don't know. Jessica Rosin, uh, Rosen, yes. something like that. Yes. Yeah. That, that's one of my favorite, like, you know, uh, backstories that we've ever had on was, you know, 
how she used to be a circus performer and now she's an AppSec. I'm like, that's amazing, right? Like, I, I, I don't know how you, be, how you beat that as far as well, like a backstory. Pa- Patrick, who we used to work with at the consultancy we don't talk about, uh, he yeah. had a, um, he was a pyrotechnic. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't know what you call that. Pyrotechnic engineer, we'll say. Yeah. I'm churching it up. I don't actually know what it's called, but that's what he did before he came into AppSec. It was awesome. It was like the coolest interview ever given to any, or, you know, had it coolest interview where I was the interviewer to like hear that. I actually like, we talked forever about that. Cause I was like, okay, can we like, delve? we're not <laughs> Just, glossing over wait, wait, wait. time as a pirate <laughs> <Rewind>. wizard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was cool. Yeah. yeah what man. about you? I, like, what are your highlights? Right. Six years. I ago. mean, we had so many friends on that, you know, sort of, I think, you know, the, I've learned a lot from, cause I come in with some assumptions and then people will, you know, bust those up. And I love that. Like uh, one that comes to mind is Dave Ferguson. You know, this was the first time and I don't remember how long ago Dave Ferguson's episode was on, but it was like, it was a while ago. It was before. Cause like now, sorry, let me finish these thoughts. So at that time, it was not a thing to say, yeah, developer training isn't really like where it's at. Right. That, that was going against the grain. Cause that's when like all the big platforms were coming up. And while I don't necessarily think it, you know, it, we, there were new, there was a nuanced discussion, right? It wasn't like, well, don't just take that headline and be like, ah, oh, he's saying like, that's not, no, it was a nuanced discussion. There's obviously pros and cons to what you're trading, how you're trading, who you're trading and all that stuff. But I thought it was the first time where someone came in and said, uh, no, like, actually, I don't agree with everybody else is saying, turns out he was very, very prescient, very right, very accurate. I mean, that's what we saw four years later, like, or however long it's been since we had his interview. But um, I do believe it was pre-pandemic. And like I said, at that time, you know, everybody who was in the training platform was like on the rise. And uh, so it was kind of a controversial thing to say. We've had other guests, guests like that, hard to recall off the top of my head, where they come in and they like make you really think about, um, all right, here's what the established sort of norms are and what everybody says we should do and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, no, it actually doesn't work. Like I've actually tried that. It doesn't work. I and mean, here's why, you know? So yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Um, and then obviously, um, you know, I feel like, you know, one of the biggest things that's, that's happened through the podcast over the last six years is our uh, ability to travel literally all over the world and meet people. Yep. Cause this is not a big, um, it's not a big field, right? It's 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 not really supposed to be. I mean, it's a pretty niche skill set. Uh, I mean, obviously, we'd love to have a lot of people in it, but it is a pretty niche skill set. And you really have to have like the desire to want to do. It's a strange thing that we do if you think about it. Um, looking at code and finding vulnerabilities, right? Like that's not. And obviously, there's more to it than that, but you know, it's it's not a common uh, desire on people's part. So anyways, being able to connect with those few people out there all over the world who do this and suffer those same pains and not along probably a lot when we're sitting here saying this sucks or that's great, or, you know, Hey, this is actually the real reality of, you know, doing this in, at scale or in a real shop or whatever it might be. Right. It's really cool to, to have that. I mean, I think the first time that ever hit me was we went to, we went to global AppSec in uh, Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. And I was yep. sitting at a breakfast buffet alone um, in the morning before we were going to go train people. And I was wearing the absolute AppSec uh, shirt. And we, I mean, this was, this actually, I believe was 2019. 2019. Like spring of 2019. Yeah. 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 So it was only, you know, a couple years old or 
like a year and, a, and some change old at that point. And uh, they came up and was like, hey, I love the podcast. Or you can, and it's uh, nice to meet you in person. And I'm like, I'm in a breakfast buffet in some hotel in Tel Aviv. And I'm getting to meet somebody who does AppSec and recognizes the podcast. So it just, you know, anyways, there's been a lot of highlights um, like that. Really no lowlights um, other than maybe like uh, that time we upset some developers with finding vulnerabilities <laughs> now. But no, besides, and I'll, crazy. I, I'll reiterate that too, right? Like, you know, I, I think about, again, the people, the community I've met, right? Like, you know, and sadly, you didn't like, you couldn't make that I mean, when we did the deep sec training or when I did the deep sec training, but meeting like Juan over there and hanging out with him and Mateus for, you know, two or three days as they were in training and just like, but we met him through the podcast, right? Like, uh, you know, yeah. that's the of only connection. one I haven't ever gone to. Yeah. <laughs> the only that's one I missed. I <laughs> yeah. That's the one I have to pull up. Exactly. <laughs> you know, after all the crap I took about some conference that doesn't really exist and, you know, uh, yeah, whatever. Oh yeah. So everybody knows this guy was sending me beautiful pictures from Vienna of all the, like the pretzel he had bought and the beautiful architecture. And yeah, I was like, cool, man. Thanks. It's thanks, an awful nice. place. Uh, awful place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get back there. We'll get back there anyway. Well, cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm excited. Like here's to another six years as we keep moving along and yeah, let us know, join Slack. Um, and we'll, uh, yeah. Keep the conversation going there. Right. Sure, yeah. And again, I just want to throw out cause we haven't got, I mean, unless I haven't checked my, uh, email in a few days, but for absolute AppSec email. But uh, again, if you, there are guests you want us to bring on, if there are topics you want discussed, um, if you're interested in having, also if you like, if there's a speaker who, or somebody you know who you think should come on. And uh, sometimes people need a nudge. I didn't realize some people get really nervous about coming on here actually. Uh, found that out actually yesterday. Uh, excuse me, no, last Friday uh, from someone. But anyways, um, yeah, just let, let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll give some gentle nudges. And, uh, but yeah, you know, six years goes by. You, you, AppSec is, you know, obviously we, uh, we, we need topics, right? It's always good yeah. to have topics and input from other folks. We're kind of just winging it, guessing what people want to hear. So yep. uh, still struggling with offensive web assembly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's yeah. always a fun one. Yep. Um, well, yeah, we should... I, yeah, I mean, I think we'll do more like tool um, demos as well. I like, I know there's some of that that's been on the on the horizon. Um, just a matter of kind of putting that together. Like, even if it's as simple as like, oh, look, this is how I utilize Burp, right? Like, we we're, we're more than happy to actually show some of that off. Um, you know, I've been playing with some of the new GraphQL stuff that's built into Burp nowadays, or the some of the extensions that are there, um, GraphQL Raider and the other and the like. Um, but pairing that uh, anyway, like I'm going, I'm going off now. So uh, like, we'll, we'll get to that in a future episode. Um, but do we really do appreciate the interaction. We appreciate everybody that's in the community. Thanks for being a part of absolute AppSec. And yeah, here's to another year, right, Ken? Absolutely. Right. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, good. Uh, yeah, we'll be, we'll be back next week. And um, otherwise, I guess we'll see everybody online. Ken, any last minute thoughts? Sure. Yeah, one last thing. So again, I love this. It's the, I'm going to try and stand up here. AI won't save you, uh, which is ironic coming from me, I'm sure. But 
more on that later. I, I mean, I think there's responsible use, but anyways, uh, the, the, the design is really awesome. And again, it goes to toys for tots for now it's going to be for 2024 December. So anyways, uh, the links in the chat. Um, yeah, check it out. Cool. All right. Thanks everybody. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye.